couple other things you might need to know about is that we will be, um, I put these up on the website, uh, all the, so if you lose a week or if you miss a week, you can always go up on the website, listen, and download the thing if you really are that dedicated and hardcore about it. Oh, wow, look at this. <laughs> Albert, that's terrific. Thank you very much. Um, another thing I'm going to encourage you to do, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to bring it with you. Because we're going to be spending a lot of time in the book of Luke this year. We're going to almost focus exclusively on the Gospel of Luke, which is in the New Testament. And I think it'll be helpful if you have a Bible, or if you have a phone that has a Bible app on it. A lot of people do that now. If you, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to grab one, we have a few in the back there, paper copies. Uh, they're not really fancy or expensive, you know, but you can definitely take one home, t- consider it our gift to you. Um, and uh, I think that you would enjoy that, um, you know, at least having paper copy. I like to use a paper copy of the Bible. That's kind of my thing. I, I don't really, I mean, I can use digital, but um, I just feel, I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up doing it, whatever. But do whatever you want. Um, we'd love to have you participate. I'm really glad to have my kids with us today as well. They're not going to be able to be here every week, but um, they came tonight to say hello to everybody. And uh, ladies, uh, get to know Jenna. She will be your best friend this year. She's a, she's a good campus mom in a way. You need a pen. You can raise your hand. There'll be lots of blanks to fill in, lots of notes to take. This is not like another class, I promise you. Who needs a pen? Oh, one more thing about those goodies is that the lady who made them is from Belarus, and they're like Russian treats. Yeah. In the middle. The ones in the middle, the, the little treat things, right? The little... And they're good, Albert says. You know what they're called? Her name is Tatiana. I don't know. What are they called? Did she give you a name? Fabulous. They're called Fabulous. Um, and then, so we have some Mexican. We have American Chex Mix. There's an American chocolate cookie left. And there's an American chocolate cookie. That... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, just kind of hit me all right, so while everybody gets settled, let's talk a little bit. I want to get you uh, an idea of what we're doing. What we're going to do today is we're going to have a run-up to the semester, kind of give you guys an up, uh, up, well, an intro, I'm calling it a prologue, to kind of get things going and giving you background. And then we'll dive right into Luke 1, and if we, I hope we can get to it. Uh, right now it's only 8.15, so we should be able to get to our groups. So what we try to do, one of my goals, is to get you guys split up in groups and have conversations and work through stuff together every week so that you get to know each other and it's not just me talking, because that's boring. So, thank you, Maddie, for agreeing with me there. Um, Yes, she's a a treasure. I'm glad she's here (laughs) this year. Um, So right off the bat, the theme for this semester is true discipleship, uh, real discipleship. Uh, Before we dive in, I want to ask you something very basic. What does it mean to be a Christian? Um, And I don't necessarily need an answer right away. I'm going to give you a couple, or actually three different typical answers when I talk to college students who might think, uh, you know, how they might respond to this question. Okay, from all different backgrounds, because I know we all come from different places and uh, have different, different ideas. Um, some people consider themselves a Christian. I would call them a generational Christian. You might think you were born a Christian. Hey, your parents are Christians, you're a Christian, right? You grew up in a house. I had friends at college who were like this, who who consider themselves Christians, say, hey, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, because my parents are Christians, I'm a Christian. It's like, my parents are American, so I'm, I'm American, or my parents were British, so I'm uh, from the UK. Some people say they're a cultural Christian. So you might say, I'm a Christian in the same way that I'm not a Muslim, or I'm not Jewish, or I'm not an atheist. There's something uh, cultural about, about my Christianity. It's just, who, it's just who I am. 
Uh, it doesn't really mean anything other than it's kind of, you know, an identifier. It's like, what color is your skin? Where do your parents come from? What nation? Like, some people say, I'm, like I just said, this lady from Belarus. She, you know, she say, I'm from Belarus. She didn't choose to do that. It's just who she is. All right? Some people might say, I'm a cultural Christian. I'm a generational Christian. The last one, uh, some of you might actually think that because you went to church and were baptized maybe as a child that you're a Christian. You're a religious Christian. It's like just how you grew up. You know, you say, well, I, I, you know, my, my parents became Christians, but I just grew up as a Christian. I've always been a Christian. And whenever was a time when I wasn't a Christian, maybe that's the way you think. But I have here, I think, I don't know how much of this is written on your thing, but the Bible tells us that being a Christian doesn't have to do with being born in a certain family, doesn't have to do with a certain nationality or being baptized as a baby. None of these things makes you different or makes you a Christian necessarily. The difference between a person who's a Christian and a person who is not a Christian is whether they have come to Jesus in repentance and faith personally receiving the gift of salvation. Now, this is key. And I know, I know some of you are very aware of this. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm right with you. I've done, this is part of my life story. Some of you may be thinking, I'm not sure if what you're saying is true. That's okay. That's part of why we're here today. The difference between the person who is a Christian and a person who is not a Christian is not where they're born. It's not where they're, what they did when they were a kid or whatever. It has to do with whether or not they personally have received the gift of salvation from Jesus. So the question is, uh, do you have Jesus? There's a couple of verses there. I, I, I like to ask you guys to read. So I think I printed out a couple of these. First John 5.12. Does anyone want to read that for us? Nice and loud. Okay, read it, Maddie. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, and you can look that up in its context if you'd like. But the verse is very simple. Whoever has the Son, which is Jesus, has life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. It's like a very simple binary. Uh, John 3.36 Let's read that. Yes, Grace. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son should not see life. For the wrath of God remains on Okay, so here we have having the Son and believing the Son are parallel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The word obey here um, does not mean like um, live a life of obedience. What it actually means in this, the original word has the idea of not believing someone so you don't do what they say. So it's like if I tell you something, if I say, I'm trying to convince you of something. You ever done this with somebody? You try to convince them of something so they do something stupid? You're trying to convince them, and, they're, and then they, they're very skeptical, and they say no. That's someone who, who is this, who does not obey, who does not believe and does not obey. Has, has, it definitely is tied up with, in fact, a lot of translations translate this believe. This doesn't have the idea of being living a life of obedience. It's, it's, it's paralleling this idea of belief. It's like trust. It's like trusting, yeah. So you're going to do it, right? Yeah. Um, so most of you, how many of you would say, you don't have to raise your hand, you know John 3.16. You know, you're, you're at the football game, you see John 3.16 on a sign. It's a very common verse. But how many of you know what the context of John 3.16 is? What's around that verse? Let's look at this real quick. I'm going to read this here, and I want you to look and see what this says about um, having a relationship with Jesus, being a Christian. As Moses, Jesus is talking here, he's talking to this man named Nicodemus, who's a rich ruler, who's a religious man, and he's telling him how this rich uh, religious man can come into a relationship with him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's a whole story behind that, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus is going to have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you've got a simple, again, binary, I keep using that word, back and forth. You have he who believes and he, whoever does not believe. He or she who, does not, who believes and whoever does not believe. You have the simple back and forth. Whoever believes, what, what's the result of that? They don't perish. They yeah, they don't perish. What does perish mean? Die. Die, right? Or as, as um, our lady from Paclot says, die, right? <laughs> I'm going to pick on you if you pick on me. We're good, right? Good. We're good, all right. Um, should not perish, should not die, should not experience death. And, and there's something the Bible tells us about death. The Bible explains death not as not existing. See, see we have this thing um, in our family. It's kind of funny. Kids have these, uh, the way they perceive the world is very, it's very interesting to me. Like, we have three little kids. Uh, you, you met them. The oldest is five. And I remember when um, we would always use the word dead to describe things that had lost their charge. Like our phones and our iPads. We would always say, oh, my iPad's dead. I need to charge it. And so my kid actually learned how to charge things. It was really funny. He would, oh, I can do it. So he'd take the iPad or take the phone and he'd plug it in and he'd think, you know, boop, it would, you know, pop up and then start charging. And he thought that was great. It was charged so we could use it. Oh, my phone's dead. That was the terminology we used all the time. Well, we were, we were going somewhere and there was a squirrel that was flat on the, on the side of the road. Have you seen the, you know, they've been running about 50 times. It looks like it's, about that thin, and my and he says, "What is that?" And my wife says, "Well, that's a squirrel. It's dead." And he goes, "I think we need to charge it." <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it's so, but it's so wrong because you can't. That doesn't do anything. Char- you know, his mindset around dead was that something had been depleted and needed to be refilled. In in our in your mindset, most likely, as an American in the 21st century, your mindset of death is if something is dead, it is non-existent. Like, if a guy says, what are my chances? And the girl says, it's dead. Our relationship is dead. What do you think that means? So you're saying there's a chance, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, dead means like nothing, like non-existence of something in our minds. But you have to understand something. In the Bible, that's not really what dead means. Dead doesn't have the concept of non-existence. What it has the concept of is separation from, Okay. Because in the Bible, the teaching is that the soul is forever. So death is really separation from God. It's not non-existence of something. So you, in a sense, will perish. You will live. The worst kind of death is to be separated from God. And that, that is remains true throughout all the Bible. You look at it. That is a consistent philosophy behind death in the Scripture. So the person who believes will not perish. Even though your body physically dies, you will not be separated from God. But the person who does not believe, what happens? They, they, they're, already they're, they're already separated from God. They're already experiencing death, in a sense, and their body is dying as well. And when they die, they will experience eternal death. And it's a very sad thing. So there, it's, very, it's very simple. And, and here's, whoever believes is not condemned. Right? You're not condemned. What does the word condemn mean? That you're already, like, out yeah. I don't know how to say it. What does that look like? Looks like damn, right? Looks yeah. like damned. Well, it's, don't worry, it's not a curse word. It's okay. 
Um, what well, is a curse word technically? But to 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 judge. Yeah, Albert, is that what you going to say? I was going to say your, your fate has been determined. Your fate has been determined. Yeah, it has to do with being judged. You've been declared guilty. Judged. Boom. But if you're not condemned, it means you're not declared guilty. The problem is, is that the person who hasn't believed is already condemned. It's like you've been declared guilty, and the problem is you have to be declared unguilty. You have to be declared righteous. There's a problem in that we all have sinned, and we're on the bad side of God's wrath. We're on the bad side of God's judgment because of who we are. We're already condemned. Um, so the question is, is, do you as a person have peace with God? Do you, can, you, can you honestly say, yeah, I, I have peace with God. I have accepted Christ's gift of salvation. I am one who has eternal life. You notice back in John 3.16. I'm going to go back here and look at this verse. Uh, sorry. Yes, I know. I passed it. Here it is. Um, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, if you have your Bible, I, I didn't put it up on the screen. I thought I did. John 5.24 is another verse you can turn to. Um, I'm just going to read it for you. Uh, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 5.24. He does not come into judgment, there's our word again, but has passed from death to life. There's a moment in every person's life where you have to choose, am I going to trust Christ or am I going to trust myself? Am I going to lean on what Christ has already done or am I going to try to get to heaven on my own power or my works? And if you believe in Christ, then you have everlasting life now. Starts now and never ends. So um, next question is, okay, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you're a believer, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, Do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? There is a difference uh, in the Bible between those who are believers and those who are disciples or followers of Jesus. Okay? This is important. You can be a believer without being a follower, and you can be a follower without being a believer. Don't believe me? Think about it. All right? You can be a believer and not a follower. You'll be miserable because you won't be obeying Christ. And, and God will do everything he can to bring you back into, into fellowship with him. And you won't have fellowship with God. You'll be miserable. We've talked about that in previous semesters. But it's actually, this is the one that kind of trips people up. Do you know people can be disciples of Jesus? They can be followers of Jesus and not be a born-again believer, not be someone who's actually a, a child of God? Can you think of anybody in the Bible who would fit that description? Judas. Judas. <laughs> That's all right. Judas, is it on there? Did I put that on there? No? She's on point, yeah. Judas, I mean, Judas was somebody who was a disciple of Christ. He did, because discipleship is about your behavior. It's about following Jesus in your actions, in your heart. And some people follow and they pattern their life after Jesus, but they are still trying to work to heaven on their own or whatever. They're not actually true believers in Christ. So what does it mean? Uh, You can be a believer, there it is, without being a a follower. You'd be miserable, but it's possible, and you can be a follower without being a believer. Um, And Judas, there he is. So, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, I have the words follow me there. Jesus uses the words follow me constantly. I gave you a footnote there, and there are tons of references in the Bible to follow me, where Jesus calls people to follow him. There's a difference here. One of the goals this semester is to convince you to, that you ought to take seriously Jesus' call for you to follow him. So, what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower or a learner. A follower or a learner. That's what a disciple is. Um, there's a Greek word, 
I gave it to you in English. I forgot to do it in English here, but it's mafetes. Um, and it means one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, an apprentice. One who is rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation or a particular set of views, a disciple and an adherent. Here's where it's different from, from how we might study. Like, how many of you, uh, or all of you, many of you, most of you in college, you're in college, you're sitting in class, and you have a teacher. How many of you go home with your teacher at night? Nobody? That sounds wrong. I'm really sorry. How many of you go and eat dinner with your teacher after class? How many of you go and stay in a special room provided by your teacher at their house? How many of you wake up and eat breakfast with your teacher and his family? How many? No, nobody, right? When you, you go and you have a special time set apart where you go in your class and you listen to teachers teach you and you're like, thank you, I'm done, and you go on your own. You don't sit there at the feet of that teacher constantly and learn how they do things. In the ancient world, that's how they did it. If I was a teacher, I would have little people following me around constantly. And they would be doing what I do. So I have certain habits. And they would pick up those habits. Because their way of learning was you learn everything that teacher does and you copy. You copy what that teacher does. That teacher, uh, teacher, and the teacher would ex- and just throw out wisdom and say, well, you know, let me show you why I did this in this situation. He would, he would say something to the little students, the disciples, they would, they would do whatever they're supposed to do. and uh, They would copy and they would just obey whatever this guy said. That is the idea. It's not somebody who just learns. It's someone who actually copies another person, follows closely the pattern laid down by another person. If you're a disciple of Christ, can you see how that might change how you behave? You're not just learning, like, information. You're actually trying to become a person who copies who Christ is. So here's a phrase here. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he means you are to pattern yourself after him, to obey him, and to be chiefly identified as a follower of Jesus. It's a lot to ask for in today's world. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is the purpose that God has called you for. Does that make sense? We making sense so far? Anything not, not clear? I think it's pretty straightforward, but if you ever have any questions, please don't hesitate to interrupt because this is kind of opening kind of introduction stuff. So here are my goals. My goal, my one goal for this semester for you guys and girls is first to know Christ, know Jesus, so we can follow him. And be real disciples. So it's a process. You've got to know Christ before you can follow Christ. It's pretty simple, but you think that you think that it makes sense. But a lot of people try to jump into saying they want to be a disciple of Christ, but they don't want to. They don't have any interest in actually getting to know who Jesus is. You've got to strip away your preconceptions of who Jesus is, and look at what the Scripture says about who He is. Which is why we're studying the Gospel of Luke this year, because I want you to be exposed to Jesus and who He really is. We're going to do all the stories in Gospel of Luke, all the major stories there, and show you Jesus in every single one of them. So it starts with the knowledge of Christ and moves to the decision. This is on your thing here, a little some, some uh, arrows. Knowledge of Christ to decision to obey Christ and then to a lifestyle identification with Christ. So somebody will look at you and say, that is a disciple of Christ. That is someone who follows Jesus.
really all lifestyle is is a collection of habits, a collection of things that are little decisions. And decisions come from your, your understanding. Alright, we're going to be looking through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, some of this might you might be like, I don't see how this directly affects me today, that's okay, hang in there with me, I'm sure that you will uh, understand or you will get it. Since so let's talk about a little bit of this, uh, getting into the first week of work here, anticipation for the coming Christ. Uh, we're going to work through the anticipation in the Old Testament and in Luke 1. Any questions until we get into Luke? If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke. We're going to be doing some reading there, but actually before we get there, we're going to be um, doing a walk through the entire Bible. Are you ready? We're going to walk through the entire Bible to get to Luke. Okay. All right. Um, let's talk about the Old Testament story. Why do we desire to follow Jesus? Let me just read through some of this stuff. Is there something about Jesus that makes him the one we should follow? Why should we not follow Buddha? Why not Muhammad? Why not Gandhi or Lincoln or Mother Teresa? I think the reason, as you'll see right now, is that the whole of everything revolves around Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates him. The New Testament reveals him. If we take Jesus' claim seriously in the Bible, we're compelled to follow it. He gives us reason. He is, if we take what he says, you know, if it's really what true, then we've got to follow him. He's worthy. In fact, the world has been full of great and admirable people. He's the only one that deserves to be followed as a disciple. And he's the only one who deserves our worship. So let's talk about the anticipation in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first part of your Bible. If you open your Bible and you look at, you have the Old Testament all the way through Malachi, and the New Testament starts with Matthew. Um, if you have a digital Bible, a lot of times it's divided right there. You'll see Old Testament books and New Testament books. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and it was written to the Jewish people, right? And it started being written sometime around 1400 and all the way up to about 400. So over about 1,000 years of, of writing was the Old Testament. Um, if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 1. The very first chapter, the very first book, gives us everything we need to know about the setting of this whole story. It begins right at the start with this phrase. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. Everything else is below him in his creation. God establishes himself as the one who makes all and is Lord of all. In fact, if you go to the very end of that chapter, verse 28, not the very end, but close to the end, God creates man and woman, and what does he do? Immediately he starts telling them what to do. He says, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In fact, he got a man and a woman, he said, Go have children and go do your job. Subdue the earth. Do work. God blesses them and he sends them out and he actually commands them. So God is the creator. He has authority. But there's a problem that arises immediately in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, you see Eve, the wife, is tempted to doubt God's word and his authority. And she thinks she knows better than him. And this is the essence, uh, this is the essence of all sin, of all wickedness, is this idea to doubt what God says. Um, the, the serpent comes to him and says, has God said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman doubts, and he tempts her to eat, and she does. She disobeys what God says. And for this, man, God brings judgment on the sin. And then immediately, the um, story of the Bible turns to the sin of the people in the world. The next chapter, these people who were created perfect, their son kills a brother. Cain kills Abel. In Genesis chapter 5, you have the genealogy, and you have all these people who die so-and-so dies, and so-and-so dies, and so-and-so dies. 
death, death, death. God said death came because of sin. A sin and death came. Uh, death has entered and everything is bad. The sin is so sinful, the world is so sinful, Genesis chapter 6, so sinful and so full of violence that God decides to send a great flood to destroy the whole world and saves them through one family because of the sin on the world, in the world. Um, but he selects a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, he, he selects a people. They aren't very good example. They disobey, they fight, they argue, they worship other gods, they don't keep the law. But he's faithful even though they are anything but faithful. Even while this awful stuff is going on, there's hope. If you're still in Genesis, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And there's a very, very important verse here. There's promise and hope. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your, he's speaking to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There's promise, there's a promise of a champion, a coming savior who would destroy sin and give hope. And then in Genesis 12, he selects a man named Abraham. He says, through your seed, there will come someone who will destroy, who, who he, I will make you, uh, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You know, I will bless everyone through your child. There will be someone coming from you. Of course, Abraham is very old, and he is, uh, he is given a, uh, a, a child in his old age named Isaac. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David. He says, you're going to have a king that's going to come from you that's going to reign forever. Now, there's other two options here. Either the king lives forever, uh, or the kingdom lives forever. Well, the kingdom died. The kingdom got cut off, so eventually there will have to be a king who lives forever. And who's going to be that king? Who's going to be that champion? And there, he's a son of him who is a son of him. So there's this, 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 uh, these hints of hope, these hints of promise, that not, even though all this terrible stuff is going on, all this death has come, it's still not lost. There are hints of hope, a future solution is coming. If you have your Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 6. Uh, is, is a great prophecy. That's in the middle of your Bible, Isaiah 53, 6. Um, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, who's that? His servant. The iniquity of us all. God's going to have someone who will take our iniquity for us. How about this? Uh, there's even hints of a resurrection. Psalm 16.10, it says, You will not abandon my soul in hell. You will not let your Holy One, or the, the grave, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. This idea that God will not even let His Holy Messiah be in the grave long enough for Him to experience decay, which is what happens when Jesus is on the grave three days, not long enough to decay. Job 19.26 as well, he talks about being in His flesh and seeing God at the end of times. Or even some very strange prophetic words in Isaiah 9. It says, For unto us a child is born. You heard this prophet Christmas. Unto us a son is given. Government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. A child shall be called Mighty God? Everlasting Father? Prince of Peace? We get to the end of the Old Testament and you're left with anticipation. There's a problem. We need a perfect king. We need a perfect prophet. We need a perfect priest. And the New Testament gives us a story of fulfillment. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. I think I have it written there in your thing, uh, in your notes. But Matthew chapter 1, after you get to the end of the Old Testament, you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, the very first book of the New Testament, and you get to the verse that says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you remember what I said earlier, right here, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These two are promises to these two. And that's exactly what is brought to us at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David. 
he has the fulfillment. He said, he's, in fact, he says this. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to, not to abolish, but to fulfill them. For I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not a, not a yoda, that's not a jot, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has come to, to um, accomplish. He gets to himself apostles who become, or disciples who become apostles, and this is the fulfillment uh, right here. And so what we get in Luke 1 and 2, or really Luke chapter 1 as we finish here and get ready to break up into our groups, is that we have God beginning to work. All of a sudden, if you turn to Luke, go ahead and get in your Bible, turn to Luke. We've finally gotten there. We see that God, after many years of silence, you have to imagine this, it's been 400 years since God has come and spoken to his people. If you get the end of the Bible where the prophets were speaking, and they've built the temple and they're there, and all of a sudden you've got this problem where, where God's people are, are suffering under Roman rule, they're really oppressed, and they're wondering, where is God in this, where is God in all this? God has not spoken. God all of a sudden enters the scene dramatically by sending his angel Gabriel. So if you read with me in Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at some of these verses, and then we're going to split up and, uh, and talk about the responses to these things. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, and his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside, at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And he will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. If you skip down to verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord a prepared people. God enters the scene by his messenger, and they says there's going to be a son born. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe, is shocked by this, doesn't believe what's going on, and, and he actually, is, his mouth is sealed, and he's not allowed to talk until he breaks out into song, which will actually, one of your groups will discuss this song that he breaks out into. Then we have Jesus's uh, birth foretold. We see that in um, chapter 1, verse 26. You skip over to verse 26. Gabriel comes again. And you know this, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord be with you. And he says, uh, do not be afraid, Mary, verse 30, you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he, great and mighty, uh, he will be great and mighty and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. She's a virgin, he says, don't worry, that you will have the Holy Spirit will come over you. You will not, what will be born of you is not born of man, but of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is impossible with God. Verse 37, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, but let it be to me according to your word. At this point is where I want to break us into groups. So we're going to divide you guys right down the middle, and here's what we're going to do. You're going to discuss, you have about 15 minutes to get together in groups and discuss these two things. I listed on your sheets Mary's song and Zachariah's song. What I want you to think about is God has, imagine you put yourself in this situation. God has been absent from the scene for a long time. It feels like God has abandoned your people. You're looking for hope. And all of a sudden, God enters the scene in two dramatic ways. One, he promises a forerunner, John the Baptist, to his parents. One who will set the stage for the coming of the Lord. And then he goes to Mary and promises the coming Messiah is going to be born through her. And in these two people, they respond. Mary responds, 
And this, uh, this right here, I think it's on, on your sheet the, on the left, Mary's song. I'm going to give this Mary's song to this group over here. And what I want you to notice is uh, what does each song reveal about how God's word affects our worship. Just make comments, make thoughts, or, or talk about it amongst yourselves. And this group over here, we're just going to invite you right, actually kind of lopsided. So let's do it right here. Yep, right there. This group over here, you're going to talk about Zechariah's song. And this group over here, you're going to talk about Mary's song. I'm going to give you about 10 minutes. So you have plenty of time. Talk about it, read it through and as a group. You might want to circle up or whatever. Now's the time. Go ahead. Go. No more waiting. Oh, thank you. Two reasons. Terms of what you're there for, and also maybe to decide. I get sidetracked. We'll go one more minute, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Because God is His promises. As a not to combine them on this but I also to say I'm always thinking about the fact that these are promises. One of my favorite passages of scripture is uh, out of Malachi, where it uh, talks about I am the Lord and I change not. It basically said, because I am who I am, I cannot change. And I will never change because I am who I am. It's just really how it works together. I think the other observation is Right, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you now, and uh, I heard some good, some good talk going on. That's great, great way to get started. Let's talk a little bit about this first group here, Mary's group. Do you guys want to give us any uh, feedback on your passage? What did you th- What did you think? What are some observations just pulling from this? What do you What did you find? Um, we were talking a little bit about the counterintuitiveness of how God works because He's like He's bringing down the mighty and He's exalting. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, helping Israel, uh, his servant. I thought I had a. Uh, hang on. Let's do this. He helped Israel. Yeah, he is uh, filling the hungry. He's exalting those of humble estate. So God's doing things that are, are as you said, counterintuitive. And that God isn't uh, a friend of the, the strong. He's actually he's befriending the weak. In this case, Mary, right? What else did you think? Oh, or fine. What, what was she doing? How did she worship God in this? In this song. What's some things she did? You guys can contribute to because it's right up here. What, what's some things you see? Yeah, don't think too hard. She's being happy. She's happy. Alright, um, some people think of worship. It's like you're going to church and you got to worship. Oh, you know, i got to be very careful. Can't say anything too loud. Can't be too boisterous depending on your church background or whatever, your culture. She is rejoicing in God, her Savior. My Savior. Mary needs a Savior. She's a sinner too. God, my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. My heart, my... And the word soul means whole being. Everything about me makes God great. So that's her way of worshiping. Is to say God is amazing. Focusing on God, how great God is now. And how God, great God is to her. I think I said something about... There's a lot of references to her, right? Anything else you guys wanted to reference? Or mention? We're also talking about down there um, in 55, uh, yeah, the bottom where it says, um, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, we're talking about how she reflected back on, yeah. on the promises that God has made, uh, well, the promises that God made. Yeah. And that he will be faithful to fulfill those promises. Yeah, I put the word prom
today. Boy, it's exciting stuff. When you think about God at action, God at work, just put your mind in her mind. Think about where she's coming from. There is like this malaise. There is this frustration. There is this depression among people. Why hasn't God spoken to us in a long time? Boom, God is there. And he's like, I'm here and there's going to be salvation. I'm here and the biggest thing is coming. And she's so excited. He who is mighty, she talks about God's might. He has done great things, not just in ages past, not just to other people. He's done great things for me. Man, that's exciting. You think about God's power and God's ability to do these things? Um, this is something that has impact for generations. Uh, this, this is some powerful stuff. Very exciting. He has shown strength. This is covering it up, but he has shown strength. Let's see if I can get rid of this. Nope. <laughs> Failure. There we go. He has shown strength with his arm, with God's power. Okay, great. So you see how her worship comes out of her heart. She is, she is trying to, uh, to worship with the Lord there with all of her heart. How about Zechariah? How does he respond? Group number two. What would you come up with? Give me some observations here about Zechariah's worship. One of the uh, first ones was pointed out was the, the attitude of praise. Praise. Good. It starts off with blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel. Uh, realizing that everything he's talking about is just he, he's, he, he's acknowledging it and just praising God, blessing God, the God of Israel for he has done this, he's done this he's done this, he's, and it's all focused on what God has done good, what do you notice about here it's all past tense and here this idea of God fulfilling his promise that, hey, he has visited and redeemed his people. Here comes God. He's coming. There's so much anticipation building up here with what's going to happen with the coming of the, of the forerunner of John the Baptist and the Jesus' birth. And, and Zechariah knows it because he's been told, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You, child, may be called the prophet of the Most High. This is his son, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Who is he going before? The Lord. Who is he really going before? Jesus, right? Jesus is the Lord God in the flesh. We know that from John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is powerful stuff. He is so thrilled that God is acting. God is coming and He is moving in on the scene. God has raised up a horn of salvation. Horn, a horn of saving. Um, anything else? Comments? We talked a lot about remembering how um, on the surface it would be kind of confusing because ah. God is God then obviously he doesn't have to remember because it's always he remember, He knows everything like past, present, and future but in this case it's talking about almost like putting a sticky note in front of you and he's always been promised before him that's, very, that's a very good example because the word remember and the, the, remember, the New Testament was written in, written in Greek. And the word remember is where we get our English word memorial. It has the idea of a, like, anybody ever had a grandparent pass away? And you, and you bury them and you put up a tombstone. Tombstone has their name, maybe their birthday, death date. 
It's not like that tombstone is in case you forget. It's like, what was the name of my grandfather? Let me go look at that tombstone and see if I can remember what his name was. What was his name? And you go, oh, that was his name. Now I remember. When you say, I'm going to remember my grandfather, what you're doing is you're causing your mind to actively think on something. You're bringing before your face, before your mind, something. And that's exactly what's going on here. God says, I will... God is bringing to his mind. He's bringing up before himself. He is causing to remember, causing to think about his holy covenant. He is going to act on it. And God's covenant was with his people, his covenant of redemption. And it's getting ready to be fulfilled. This this gets me excited. But when Jesus is born, the coming of Messiah into the world is the most dramatic event in human history. It's why we're in the year 2016. Because we're 2016 years according to the priests who calculated this thing, from the day Jesus was born. Our calendar is unhinged on that. Everything about our world matters because Jesus came. And, and this is what he's saying. This is a huge deal with John the Baptist being that forerunner and preparing the way for Christ, preparing the way for his ministry. Any questions? He's give you a little taste of what we'll be doing next week. We'll be discussing... Uh, a couple things. I gave you a homework assignment. If you get a chance, read Luke chapter 4 and answer a few of those questions because we're going to talk about temptation. As we follow Jesus, how do we deal with temptation? Jesus is tempted in Luke chapter 4. We're going to talk about the temptation at length and you guys are going to discuss it and I think you'll find it very helpful. Any questions? We're going to close the word of prayer and we'll then have food and hang out as long as you want. Lord, thank you for the time we spent together tonight. Thank you that we were able to talk about the storyline of your Bible, how it culminates in Jesus Christ, and how we're able to see this wonderful anticipation of Christ coming. And as we want to be disciples of you, we want to know you, Lord, and I pray you'd help us to know you so we can follow you and our lives can be identified as disciples of you. Lord, thank you so much for each and every one of the people who are able to make it out tonight. I pray you'd help us to have a great first week of school and help everyone to study hard and to work hard and to stay up to date on everything. And that you would help us to be uh, uh, know exactly where we stand before you, with you, Lord, that we would have peace with you, and that our lives would be uh, where they're supposed to be, spiritually speaking. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. I pray you'd be with each one of these students this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming out, and make sure you grab some food on your way out, or hang out as long as you want. Thanks.